0: Good morning. Welcome to Bible Study this morning. So glad to have you here with us today. A special welcome to those listening on AM 890 KFUO in the St. Louis area and worldwide on KFUO.org. Just a few uh, quick announcements before we begin our new study. The first is we are going to be jumping around just a little bit today. So if you'd like to get a sheet that just has the readings from 1 John that we're going to look at, so you can use your phone or your Bible to... Kind of bounce around uh, with me a little bit as we kind of compare. There are handouts over on the Bible rack over there, um, and that leads me into my second announcement, which is as we have finished our study on Colossians, we are starting a new series on all three Johannine epistles, the letters of John. It's um, so both myself, Pastor Thomas, and Pastor Smith will be uh, going through those letters, and we will start today with a look at First John. But before we dive directly uh, into God's word, let us begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, as those who come to study your word, who desire to know the truth in your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you allow your spirit to enter into our lives and to always give us that great guide and point back to your son, that through all things, we would give glory to your holy name. And it's in the name of the father and of the son and the Holy spirit. Amen. So we begin with 1st John and a good place to begin with is kind of those interrogative questions that maybe you remember from when you were in second or third grade and you're learning a little bit about grammar. Who, and then I changed what, because it's a book, you know, it's a book of letter written, um, but who, when, where, and why? So to answer the first question of who, who is the author of these three epistles? Um, the simple answer is, it is the same John who wrote Revelation and the gospel of John. Now, in recent years, there has been some, uh, debate, but one of the things that is very convincing about this being John, the evangelist, the apostle John, John, the son of Zebedee is that it is a very, um, consistently held position by the early church fathers, that it is almost without. Um, question unanimous in the early church that these letters were attributed to John, specifically this letter of First John. And if you look at the writing, which we will over the course of the next couple of weeks, uh, and that's part of the reason why we're going to be bouncing around so much today, is you will see just how similar the writing is to many aspects of uh, this apostle's gospel. Second question, when? So the epistles of John are some of the last books of the Bible we have written from a date standpoint. Uh, many believe they were written well after his exile from Patmos, probably likely between 85 and 95 AD. Uh, so if you want to split the difference, you could guesstimate around 90 AD. And John, at this point, was a very elderly man. Uh, the early church fathers hold the and, and, uh, these, the, even the scriptures, um, point to him being the longest living of the apostles of the direct apostles. And so we're looking at a book that was written close to 90 AD. And where to whom is this letter to be sent? Uh, we don't have a specific answer. It's not like one of the Pauline letters where he named it, you know, Romans. And you're like, well, I wonder where he was sending that. Um, but we do have some good. I would say the guesstimate to where this is going, it's it's probably someplace in Asia Minor. And part of that is because there's great evidence in the early church fathers that John, after Patmos, at some point came to reside in Ephesus. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed in kind of doing some study for this was a quote that I, I really liked because it kind of speaks to the consistency of the early church fathers and their witness to this book is that the evidence for John being in Ephesus is not overwhelming, but it is very consistent meaning you don't have John say, hey, I'm in Ephesus. But it is consistent throughout the early church fathers that this uh, letter was written by John and that John was in Ephesus. And then finally, answer the question of why. Why did John write this letter? And this might actually be one of the most hotly contested kind of items of debate, partly because we have some good clues, but we don't have, again, any direct answers. But the bottom line is... um, there were those pulling Christians, pulling those who are in the church away from the faith. And we'll really see this when we get into chapter two, but when you think about it, in that context, that John is writing to a church where brothers and sisters in Christ are being pulled away from the faith by false hope and f- false gospel, whether it were works righteousness, whether uh, a Gnostic heresy, where it's like the physical is bad and only the spiritual is good, whatever it may have been, what's clear is that brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have heard the gospel and its purity had been being pulled away from the faith, perhaps by even fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that had gone away from the faith. And so with that kind of context, we get, uh, his opening, the prologue, the first four verses of John chapter one, and it's an opening that you may notice probably sounds fairly familiar, that which was from the beginning. When you think of a book of the Bible that begins with something similar, what kind of immediately jumps to mind? John one and Genesis. Exactly. So let's go back to the gospel of John chapter one. Like I said, we're going to jump around just a
1: little bit today. And when you get to the gospel of John chapter one. A
0: little bit of a race to see who can turn their fastest. You get to the Gospel of John, chapter one, we see John say that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made. That which was from the beginning. This should give you a pretty good clue as to what. Uh, he means by that, which was from the beginning. And it only furthers it as we go in, into chapter two. But one thing I want to note is that uh, many commentators believe that this epistle was written first. So when we go back to John, the gospel of John, don't think of it as John quoting his gospel. Well, I would, you, you may be able to, but knowing the gospel of John, him knowing that, he includes some of the things he would later include in his gospel. And so that which was from the beginning, and this is really interesting. This may be one of my favorite, um, testimonies in all of scripture because of how he begins his letter, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked upon and have touched. What do you notice immediately about the the testimony of John? What he's going to say, where does he root it in? Eyewitness, and especially when we think. About this book being perhaps one of the last ones written, one of the uh, books written latest. What is not, what if there are not a lot of left perhaps at this time? Other eyewitnesses. And so John doesn't face it in, I'm going to win you over with my words, or I'm going to uh, tell you all of these things I, I heard about from this other source. But he immediately says, That which was from the beginning is that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our own eyes, that which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So if you would turn to me back to the book of Acts and go to Acts chapter 4, I want you to notice something in Acts 4 verse 20 as to how Peter and John before the council state their position. So we'll start a little bit before uh, verse 20 in verse 17. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them, that is Peter and John, to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So, here in this epistle, you have that same testimony coming from that same apostle, that same evangelist, the same disciple that walked along the road to Jesus who saw and heard incredible things. That which we have seen with our own eyes. And when we think of what he has seen, again, let's go back to the gospel of John chapter 19, and notice something very specific that John notes in his gospel after Jesus has been crucified. We read in John 19, verse 35, after Jesus had been crucified, he who saw it had borne witness. This testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. There's that same man saying the same thing in his gospel, right? How do I have this testimony? How do I write this gospel? Because this is what my eyes have seen. This is what I am an
1: eyewitness
0: to. which we have looked upon and touched with our own hands." Now, who may come to mind when you think about looking upon and touching with his own hands, someone who may be demanded to do such a thing? Yeah, Thomas. And where do we get one of the accounts of Doubting Thomas in the Gospels? Gospel of John, right? And you can see um, that, you know, when you think about the gospel, perhaps being written later. Do you think maybe he had this letter in mind when he was remembering to include those sort of specific statements that even us as disciples had one who doubted when he heard from us and said, until I see his hands and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And that disciple
1: among us got to do that very thing and we got to see him do it. Concerning the word
0: of life. Now there's, there's kind of three interesting things about this idea of life. And in Greek, much like the word love, that's always the famous example that in Greek, there's multiple words for the word love. And we're actually going to come to that a little bit in 1st John. There's also different words to sometimes describe life. There's the word bios, or we get biology, kind of the study of, of natural life, perhaps. Uh, there's another word for life that to indicate the kind of the the life of the soul or for the life of uh, one's inner being. But here we get a third word for the word life, zoe. And that word means very distinctly, uh, I'll put it this way. What I love in the uh, lexicon, when you go and look up this word, it first mentions the opposite, the opposite of this word is just death. This word is that life that without this, there is no life, it is just the nature of actually being. it is the life that, uh, one has by knowing there's an existence. It's the most fundamental, I would say most fundamental, fundamental, critical, large view of the idea of life that one can have. And that word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life. Now we're going to go back again to the gospel of John, and we're going to finish reading a bit of John chapter one. You notice we're only three verses into this and how many similarities do we already see with John's gospel? But continuing where we left off, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And I should be clear there. He's talking about John the Baptist, which can get just a little muddy before. Um, so there's no confusion that John, what he's. John the evangelist is referring to there, John 1 is John the Baptist. The true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. If you go all the way to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Immediately, when you hear word of life, when you hear in the gospel of John, the word was made flesh, we should be thinking of one thing, Jesus. That in him is truly not only the words of eternal life, but he himself is the word of life, the word made flesh. And we testify testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. And we're only through two verses. <laughs> so you can see first John's, there's so much here in these epistles. Uh, why, even though it's not a great number of verses, even combined, all three, uh, it's going to take us a few weeks at, at the very least, if not a better part of six to maybe eight weeks to get through uh, all of it. But I'm going to stop right here after two verses and ask, are there any questions? If not, that's good. We can continue. All right. Going into verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, one of the interesting things there is he asks or he answers, "Why are we doing this?" So that you may have fellowship with us. Now, who's described by that word "us"? Who do you think that's proclaiming? Do you think it's just maybe just John and maybe another guy, or is he
1: talking about something different? Believers, okay. Yeah, the
0: church at large. That what does it mean to be a part of the church, to be in fellowship? It's to know that word of life. And he even connects it directly to that, that, uh, indeed our fellowship in Greek is the koinonia is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. And once again, we go back to the gospel of John, but this time it's not John 1. Let's go to John chapter 15.
1: And notice the words that Jesus is you
0: Jesus uses when he describes himself as the true vine. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And what a what a wonderful connection there. And that's, I should have said that's 15, 9 through 11. I, I don't know if I announced the verses. So 15, 9 through 11, what a wonderful connection that is there. What did this apostle, what did this evangelist hear from Jesus? That as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. I am saying these things so that your joy may be full. And when you think about what task Jesus gave the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, evangelize, to spread the good news, it is connected directly to the good news that he shared to them that just as he took great joy in calling his disciples and in bringing salvation to the world, his disciples should take great joy in proclaiming that to others, that that joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. And I'm going to stop for a moment and just think of that concept of walking in darkness versus walking in light. It's not a concept that just begins in the new Testament. In fact, if you go all the way back to the prophet, Isaiah, you go to Isaiah chapter two. And this is one of the readings actually for the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, I forget which series in our lectionary, it's the, not this one, but maybe I think it's the one upcoming next Advent for the first Sunday in Advent. We read from, uh, Isaiah chapter two, one to five the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos spoke concerning Judah Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And listen to this uh, imperative statement. O house of Jacob, come, let us. Let us walk in the lights of the Lord. You know, there's, I think something pretty profound about the same encouragement that Isaiah has for God's people, some 700 approximately years, actually closer to 800, when you think about the age of the letter, uh, what's the encouragement of God's prophets time and time again, God, those who would bring God's word, come, let us walk in the lights of the Lord, come, let us walk, not as the world would have us walk, but in the lights of the Lord. Now, is there any other instance in the New Testament that you can think of where perhaps this contrasting of walking between lights and darkness is pretty profound, are you just going to wait for me to turn the next page and tell you? All right, let's go to Galatians and a very well done section. In fact, some of you may not even turn to it in order to know it fairly well, but Galatians chapter five.
1: starting at verse 16.
0: But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing things you want to do. Now, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us always walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another." What do you notice in those two sections is presented? In both how John describes it and how Paul describes it, In Galatians, what do you notice about just what's presented as general concept before God's people? There's no gray area. You notice it doesn't say sometimes walk over here and sometimes walk over here, or as long as you spend more time in the light than in the darkness, that's better. And I want to be careful here. We're not saying that one must be, um, sinless. Of course we confess. In fact, we're going to. John talks about that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. something that should sound very familiar uh, from the liturgy. But you notice there isn't a gray area. There's no lukewarm option. And that should confront us because as uh, sinners, sometimes I think we'd probably prefer if there was a lukewarm option. I'll walk in gentleness and kindness most of the time, but when my that relative who I just can't stand does what they hope do one more time. Here I go. Or I'll walk in the light of the Lord. I'll walk in the light of the word of life, the light that was made manifest to us when things are going great. but When things aren't going so great, sometimes I just need to revert back to some of those old temptations or frustrations or struggles. And can't that just be okay just to get me through this tough moment? of my life, it's kind of amazing when you think about the practical implications of there not being a gray area, how much we as Christians, and yet as those who are for miserable sinners, can at times be tempted to try and talk ourselves into that gray area. Talk ourselves into that sort of scoreboard, divine scoreboard of just so long as I'm more on the good side than on the bad, somehow that's justifiable. And of course we are, and we should, and John convicts us to walk in the light. But that's why I think it's so interesting that in this little section, John packs in so much, uh, that we ought to walk in the light, but if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That if we walk in the light as he is light, we have fellowship with one another. But we still need the blood of his son, Jesus, to cleanse us from all sin. This weekend, uh, the, uh, the lectionary reading, the gospel reading is from John chapter two, the wedding at Canaan. I'm not going to take too much from Pastor Thomas's sermon, but one of the things I was just talking about after the service that kind of uh, hit me was how that moment is a, a, a small typology towards what God would do ultimately through his son. Uh, Pastor Thomas will explain it better than I will, but I'll give you a quick snapshot, it was not a small deal to run out of wine and not just because people wanted to keep partying, but you actually carried with you a state of guilt in the culture and even illegally, you could be guilty if you ran out of food and wine when hosting a wedding banquet. And so what does Jesus actually do by turning water into wine? He didn't just give them a a good time for the next three days, but he took that stain of guilt that should have been on that couple and removed it from them. How true that is when we think of our own sin and what the result of that is. And we carry with us that stain of guilt, that stain of guilt that has every right to condemn us. It's got us dead to rights. We're not getting out of it. And yet what does Jesus do it's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sins. Therefore, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, and notice there, I just automatically added what we have in our liturgical, right? But there's no, but here, just if we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do you think John may have included a statement such as that so early in this epistle? Why is it important to to really map out right away that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? And that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
1: Yeah.
0: Because we think we're better than we really are. That's kind of why I wanted to go through that context. What's going on in these churches he's writing to? There are some who have remained faithful. And yet there are some who have strayed. Some who have been led away. Some who are leading away. And so what's John's goal, ultimately? One aspect is to speak to the truth, the purity of the gospel, but practically speaking, what's the goal that these believers would have?
1: To walk in the light. Okay. You look at verse three. What is he, what does he desire? bring them to faith and specifically
0: so that you two may have fellowship. What is going to have to happen between those who have remained faithful and those who have strayed for them to have fellowship? I think there's, there's a couple options, right? One is, well, they never address it and never speak of it again. And it's that unspoken secret that no one wants to talk about. That's not the good option. (laughs) The other option is, well, those who are faithful lord it over those who strayed and, uh, constantly beat them up about it to the point where they don't want to even come back because they feel so bad about it. Also not the good option. What does the desire to have fellowship mean when there's a split? And it's not, well, let's just combine beliefs to get to a happy medium. I should say there. That's maybe the third, not good option. Confession and absolution. Yeah. For all have sinned. Yeah. I, you know, so often, uh, fine quoted in our culture, we are told, you know, don't worry about the speck in my eye until you get the plank out of yours. Or reverse don't worry about the speck in your eye until you get the plank out of your own but you notice what comes next in that section the speck still gets removed but it's removed with a different understanding of who we are and john's doing the same thing here john is saying there's going to need to be uh, a real honest assessment about what the purity of the gospel is what's going on in the churches that you may be a part of who's participating in them And people are going to have to be called out, but don't do that with the indignation that we so often can carry with us when we know someone else is in the wrong, have you ever had like a really hotly contested debate about like a fact, like something that's not a gray area. It's not like who should win MVP or whatnot, but like a fact, like, you know, how many miles is it from point A to point B and someone says, no, you're crazy you're wrong, and then it turns out you were right. How do we like to tell people in those situations that we
1: were right from
0: the chuckling, I think we probably can all remember of situations like that, right? We like to kind of go, yeah, told you so what's John making sure of that. He starts this letter with this letter that he knows is going to have to go to people for dealing with fractures and issues within even a church body, not just perhaps in their own families, but even as a church family, they're dealing with fractures and issues. Remember that if you think you're without sin, you're deceiving yourself. And the truth is not in you. None of you should say, I've always had it perfect. I was always right.
1: But there's going to be the need for healing.
0: So remember that while if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, to the contrary, if we confess our sins, confess our sins before God and confess our sins before one another, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us.
1: So again, I'll open it up. If there are any questions on this first chapter. Yes, bud. Uh, that was good.
0: Yeah, and that's where many people believe this may have been written to maybe an early sort of Gnostic heresy where, um, the, the idea that the physical is not good, the spiritual is only good. So Jesus is only good. He must not have been here, you know, uh, physically. And there were all sorts of, um, heresies in the early church, which we could spend probably days upon days upon days going over. Uh, but many of them centered around what I would say is, you know, what does it mean that Jesus, the word of God? was made flesh and was manifested around us, that God came to earth. Did it mean that God gave up his Godness and just was a man only, and then later on resumed it? That's one heresy. No, God was, Jesus was hundred percent man, hundred percent God. Does that mean that God only pretended to be a real man and that it just looked like flesh, but it really was only in spirit? No, God was a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God. But so, yeah, by going through with the ideas that we have heard and we have seen and we have looked and we have touched, John
1: connects it to what? Almost like
0: the kindergarten answer, right? Our five senses just needs smell. I'm glad he didn't talk about what he just smelled. In those days, there wasn't deodorant, so I want to know what he smelled. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right, bud, that there, there, there is a specificity and an intentionality by which he begins this letter um and it it points to the reality that i myself i john have touched him have heard him with these ears have seen him with these eyes have beheld what god did through him and that of course is one of the, the strongest witnesses to the truth of the scriptures that this isn't 400 years later, a bunch of guys got together and wrote down what they had heard, but rather that Jesus's own disciples wrote down these things, wrote down these things so that we may believe. Um, I wasn't planning to do this, but once again, go back to the gospel of John. At the end of the gospel of John, notice how John describes the purpose of his writing. Uh, John 20 verse
1: 30.
0: Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There are moments where we don't know, for example, what happened when Jesus was on the road from this place to that place. We were told he went from this city to that city. He probably didn't just walk silently the whole time, there are probably conversations, probably interactions, but the things that are written in the gospels are written specifically that we may believe. These are the things that we have witnessed and want to testify to so that you would know who Jesus is. And you know, what's the kind of interesting, um, when you look at verse 10, that if we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, sorry, if we make, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. What sort of specific sin is being committed when one, well, I should say there's a couple, but when one brings forth a heresy or says something that's not true to the gospel, what are they doing in there
1: inherently? What? Breaking the first commandment?
0: What's another commandment, though, that they're breaking? I mean, there's probably many when you think about it, but specifically when one spouts out, says things that are inherently false about God, yeah,
1: they bear false witness.
0: Likewise, if one thinks that as a Christian, they're so perfect, they're so good that they have not sinned, We'll just use those two commandments what two commandments are they easily right off the top breaking one and eight <laughs> uh, among others there may be many others that are included with that all right and we'll continue uh, the first two verses of verse two and actually why it stopped there you may think well why are we only doing two verses of verse two so that's actually one of the lectionary readings again right after easter just these first uh, few verses and the first two verses of verse two, and you'll see why very quickly, why it's often included with chapter one. So John then goes from this kind of preamble about the reality of what he wants to do, the reality of our situation before God and proclaims to the people, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, what do you notice right away about the tone that this letter takes? Endearing, okay. What does this say about John's position? Perhaps. Yes, he, he was an elder. He he had he could write something like "My little children," and it wouldn't be not only offensive but it would be endearing. You know, if I started a sermon and said, "Oh, you my little children." <laughs> there probably be some of you that are like, what are you talking about? When I was your age, you were still in diapers, <laughs> right? I couldn't do that. I mean, I could in one sense, but I won't, don't worry. John not only has the respect and the authority, but also is an elder of those who he is writing to. And so he can say such a an introduction and not have it come off as belittling, but belittling. I don't know what the littering is, but, lithium, but have it come off as endearing. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now,
1: if it stopped there, what would be the problem? Well, yeah,
0: we just said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but it doesn't stop there. Thankfully. But if anyone does sin, here's what we have. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous.
1: So who gets lumped in with needing an advocate? Who gets lumped in with that? Those who have been uh, gone away from the church, but also those who have remained. All of you are reliant upon an advocate,
0: Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we're going to conclude today by focusing a little bit on that word propitiation. You have probably only heard it in church. I don't know if you've ever used it in your day-to-day vernacular. Uh, and even though we have a decent crowd here, if I were to take a poll, at the very most, it may have happened once amongst all of us. Right? Maybe one time there was some reason that you used the word propitiation in a day-to-day conversation outside of discussing the scriptures, and yet it presents itself there and many people may wonder, so what does that even mean? It sounds nice. I mean, just by the context, we can kind of figure out what it must be, right? It must have to do something with advocating for us. It must be something about the, the cleansing of sin for us, just based on the context of where it occurs. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about this word, and in Greek the word is elosmus. Um and in its varied forms, that's just the root word. But the propitiation means a necessitated, a necessitated appeasement. Meaning this is the necessary appeasement for our sin. That he was the one who had to come to give His life for your sin and not just your sin, but the sins of the whole world. He was the one who had to be the one to do it. Now, what comes to mind when you think about God declaring that this one will have to come, you go back to the old Testament. Okay. Genesis three, right? There will be one who will come and you will strike his heel and he will strike your head, crush your head, bruise your head. All right. When else though, especially as I don't want us to think about Lent too early, but we'll be in Lent before you know it. Yeah. Yeah. The suffering servants, right? That he was wounded for our transgressions. That wasn't a, well, that's, that's kind of what happened. Nope. He needed to be wounded for our transgressions. He needed to be str- stricken, smitten and afflicted for our iniquities. And all of that is kind of what's wrapped up into propitiation, that this is the necessary appeasement, the necessary one to come to forgive our sins, to come for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And you see the scale by which John kind of introduces this epistle. He starts with himself, he starts with himself, what he's seen, what he's touched, what he's heard, what he's beheld. And then he talks about the fellowship of the church. And then he talks about the fellowship that he desires for people to have with the church. But what I like about this is he ends with the reminder that this is for the whole world. Not just for a few people in Asia Minor, not just for a few people in St. Louis County or in De Pere, but this is for the whole world. It was a necessary, I'm gonna get that word at some point, necessary appeasement for our sin, and the only one that could be is Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we're gonna conclude today with that. Um, I have, to my great joy, a baptism to get over to in the sanctuary where I get to baptize my daughter. So I'm gonna get some things uh, set up for that. Uh, but before we close, are there any? questions. All right, let's close with prayer. Lord, as your apostle and evangelist John has told us, if we think we have no sin, we are only deceiving ourselves and your truth is not in us. But as those who are poor and miserable sinners, Lord, I pray that we would take great comfort in knowing that when we confess our sins, you Lord, do not uh, condemn us, but you are faithful and just and forgive us of those sins. I pray that you would allow that blessing to permeate in how we approach others and their sin in our life, that we would be humble and gracious, uh, even in those moments where we don't really feel like it, and that in all things, we would remember the great gift that your son gives to us, that as the propitiation of our sins, of the sins of the whole world, we would hold dear, hold fast, and take great joy knowing your son, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.